0: what's going on everyone thank you for joining me for another episode of the just checking in This podcast, as always, is brought to you by VENT, a place where everyone, but especially men and boys, can open up about their mental health issues, break down stigmas, and start conversations. I am your host, Freddie Cocker. Each pod, I check in with a very special guest. We have a natter and chat about everything mental health, as well as anything and everything else they are passionate about. If it helps that person with their mental health, we'll discuss it. fatherhood is an often assumed inevitability for most men and is assumed by other people for them too. The traditional argument is that men are able to gallivant how they like in the dating market because they do not have a womb, a uterus and the biological clock this presents to them. Brewiness is universally seen as a female emotion and phenomena because of the societal narratives that have taken hold over centuries and to a certain degree understandably so. The guest I'm checking in with today is going to dispel these myths. His name is Robin Hadley. Robin is a mature early career researcher who is a world expert on male childlessness and ageing. In his previous lives, Robin's worked as a counsellor, a deputy technical manager, scientific photographer and a bar and kitchen assistant, so he's definitely been around the block. In this pod, we discuss why he came to be an expert on male childlessness, his own lived experience of trauma, of being involuntarily childless, classism in academia and so much more. This is one of the most fascinating episodes I've ever done and Robin is an unbelievable man shedding light on an issue so rarely talked about in society today and absolutely drenched in stigma. So this is how our check-in went. Robin, welcome to the Just Checking In pod. Thank you so much for coming on and letting me check in with you. When we spoke off air, I just knew this was going to be such an, an enlightening and hopefully educational podcast for the listeners. First off, how are you, mate?
1: I'm well, thanks, and thanks a lot for having me on the podcast. It's uh, it's an honour.
0: It's a real privilege for you to say that to me, mate, and I'm just in awe of the work that you do. We've got so much to get through on this pod, mate, and I'm just so excited to talk about it. So shall we just crack on with the show? <laughs> In order for the listeners to understand why you became an academic on male childlessness, Rob, I think it's really important we talk about your own journey first. So walk me back to the beginning if you can. Tell me a bit about your early life in Manchester, teenage years, maybe upbringing. And looking back, were there any early mental health experiences you can pinpoint? Who's the Rob we meet here?
1: Gosh, that's a really good question. Who's the Rob we meet here? Well, I guess that is really a good onion-unpeeling question, because obviously this is the academic Rob, the Rob I want to present as knowing what he's doing and competent, but there's also, yeah, that short guy from Old Trafford in Manchester (laughs) who was born in 1960 in the the winter, and I struggled to breathe when I was born, and that led to hearing issues later in life, which we're going to discuss later. Mm. So yeah, I was born in a big family, quite poor mm. it was quite frenetic
0: one of eight i uh, believe
1: eight yeah i'm the seventh youngest Whoa. four boys four girls and that was unusual then the demographics were changing even then but obviously uh <laughs> my dad worked on the newspaper so he worked nights and he worked nights all his life so i didn't have a great relationship because when we were up and about he was asleep so we had to be very careful not to wake him he was also thrust into the role of being authoritarian. Mm. You know, the the threat was: "You can wait till I tell your dad, you'll mm. get a clout." Not that I think we ever actually did get a clout,
0: but the fear, threat yeah. was there,
1: and that was mm-hmm. uh, that was enough. And um, yeah, and being in a big family at the younger end, it's unusual because you want to step forward as a kid and be appreciated and just be, "Oh, aren't i great." But so many layers above mm. you going mm, well he's getting too much attention <laughs> <laughs> and either they nick it or they do you down a bit in the mm. most lovely way we're still yeah. all friends and we see each other but that's the way kids operate in that mm. sort of hierarchical thing so i think that that really fed in to me about a bit being reticent about stepping forward and mm. what i like to do is sort of step into the ring with the spotlight for a little while and then get back out. I don't like to hog that spotlight because <laughs> I know something's coming. I'm not <laughs> sure what it is. So go in go, ta I'm here, right, and then get out. Mm. Uh, and uh, there's something I like also about, you know, when we have a family meal, and that it's sort of, sort of organising, get it all going, and then just step back and let everything happen. And there's a joy for me in that sort of thing. But again, very much related not being in the spotlight for too long. But also if you were a bit, over the top you soon got told <laughs> mm. you've been over the top and I went to a little primary school and I didn't do well in my uh, 11 plus uh, I went to a, a secondary modern school for boys so I went from a mixed school to a, a boys only school it was quite a rough school and yeah you have to be a bit wary to not get caught by the other boys and by the atmosphere and the environment, the social environment around there, having to prove yourself. I was okay at football, I was okay at cricket, so I was all right at that. So I wasn't really picked on, but I wasn't really in the in-group either. And what I found was, because you're always being challenged, was that, because I'm sure that actually it was better to do something a bit mad. So if somebody was threatening you, you go, Wah! step towards them rather than walk. If you didn't go by the code, that through them
0: crazy is more dangerous than a big man yeah
1: so it's better to be mad (laughs) than to be hurt Mm. (laughs) but that sort of gives you a sort of quick wittedness although um, hard of hearing to listen to what people say and pick up and predict sort of came in there Mm. and I think during my teenage years because it was just a boys school I'm wanting to uh, I'm a heterosexual I wanted to meet girls and be with girls and have sex that was, <laughs> that was very difficult in an all-boys school. <laughs> uh, and so when it came to a bit later on in late teenage years and dating and approaching women and girls, I really didn't have the skills, even though I've got four sisters. I think actually that might have impacted me differently because I've got four sisters. Three of them are older. Then I have another understanding of women and actually... The lounge lizard just go in there, just to have sex thing was maybe a, a narrative I occupied, but I didn't believe in because it was a social narrative and to fit in with the the group. And that was the thing fitting in was very important. And it's an ideal. And like all ideals, only a very, very few people ever achieve them. I spent a lot of time trying to fit an ideal, occupy a narrative there that was around, but I didn't actually believe in and wasn't good at delivering, I don't think. Mm. So. I was a bit behind in finding a girlfriend compared to all my peers who had girlfriends when they were 16, 17, whatever. I think it was about 18, 19 by the time I had a girlfriend and my first girlfriend lasted, I don't know, three or four weeks. But I was crushed. But everybody else had had that experience years before. (laughs) And then I think always when it came to approaching someone, there was a cost benefit analysis. What's the risk? Am I going to get crushed? Am I going to get hurt? Am I going to get rejected? And the fear of rejection, the fear of humiliation. It's massive. But, um, isn't it? Yeah, it's a working class area of Manchester. And the women are very strong and very powerful. <laughs> and they, they let you know very, I'm very quickly. <laughs> yes, no time's wasted. <laughs> what niceties. <it> <laughs> So you get rejected very, very quickly. So that was a, a thing for me in forming relations with the opposite sex. So part of the guy you see before you is this unsure person. When I was at work, actually all through my career, my initial job, I was called sensitive. And yeah, to be a sensitive fella, just because I think I listened. You and were maybe I intelligent. My emotions, <laughs> Yeah. And maybe I, I wasn't fitting the script. So that was the one thing I could be labeled as. And this is what people do they put you into nice little boxes because that's really easy to deal with when we're really complex beings in all sorts of manners and no box really fits. If you want to get past seeing the first person you see on the street, you've got to do that sort of assessment right? is he a threat? Is he not? What's happening? Are they stopping me getting to the bus? That sort of thing. So you can't really put too much complexity when you're just trying to get through your normal day onto other people. Mm. So, yeah, I'm a complex, (laughs) open guy now. I think I try and be an open person and be genuine and Mm. authentic. And I try to listen. But sometimes, you know, I just want to have a, a cup of tea and a piece of chocolate. And that's the big driving thing Mm. for for me. And so I'm not going to be listening. I'm not going to be that. I'm just going to put myself first. Mm. That's a a balance we're all doing, isn't it? What our own needs are and where we are in society, the time and place, and how we facilitate what we want, how we get there, and what's acceptable.
0: You mentioned there about the authoritarian figure you had in your father. And when we spoke Mm. off air, I understand that you developed a fear of authority and of power structures, particularly state ones. Was that derived at all from your dad or was it from that working class background you came in through? Was it imposter syndrome, poor self-esteem or maybe a combination of all of them?
1: I think the combination of all. So obviously dad was, and actually mum, but she had the soft power. Mm -hmm. Dad had the sort of physical, structural power almost, but mum had the soft power. And so to disappoint mum, if you said to I'm disappointed in you, Oof. that was, I think, more crushing than, you know, your dad's going to clout you when you get when he gets in. Not that he ever did, I don't think. But of the two, yeah, I'm disappointed. And the look and the... Uh, but also, what we were brought up with was their fears from their upbringing. So to be out of work, not to have a skill, to not pay rent rent's dead money when you grow up you want to buy a house rent's dead money at least then you'll have some bricks and mortar to fall back on so all about security economic security I find this really interesting my one of my older brothers only a few years older than me and he said we got no support from my dad or my mum it was just that we were gonna get to school and go out and get work that was the whole thing and at that time it was a bit of a boom time so work was really available so this is late 60s early 70s before the economic problems and so people from that era would say yeah they'd sack you on the spot and you just walk down the road and get another job job. (laughs) just get another job and that bit or you just say no I've had nothing you walk out and you'd get another job obviously different times (laughs) but in between times when the oil crisis came in and all that sort of thing the economic environment really shifted to nobody having any work and so my parents suddenly in my 11 12 right you've got to work really hard you've got to be really good at maths you've got to get a safe job you don't want to be thrown on the street like so and so so -so. there's all these stories from their experience and their parents experience of terrible things happening and people being forced onto the street and not having any money and no security that suddenly became a narrative for me and that was really quite anxiety provoking i didn't realize at the time but lucky mining yes there's a difference between me and my brother but also secondary school i think the teachers tried hard but because of where i went to school it was just at the back of traffic park which at that in the 60s and early 70s was the biggest industrial estate in <laughs> europe so there's heavy industries around there or were uh, so When I was at primary school 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning used to sound out the air raid warnings they were still testing that early mornings all the kids even in primary school the factory hooters would go to signal the end of a shift beginning of another shift and we knew the names of the factory hooters so that industrialization was embedded within your environment and embedded in with you and there were terrible smogs then that would last a week And I'm really sadly right, a really old fella, (laughs) even for me. But it's true, because you don't get them to the same degree. But it would last a week, and it was smog, and everybody had coal fires. everybody smoked. Everybody smoked. So when I started going into pubs in the late 70s, you'd open the door, and it'd just be a fog in there. Of people smoke and I didn't smoke because I have a bad chest as they would say the poor boy's got a bad chest uh, I've had bronchitis which is called the Manchester cough from zero to about 19 so my doctor said I think when I was 13 do you smoke 13 do you smoke but that was common I went no he said good never do because you'll be dead by the time you're 30. The direct. <laughs> yeah, the bluntness carried through. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Yeah. So James Blunt, I think he was local. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's the sort of thing. So that fear of authority and fear of things outside that you couldn't control, you had to try and judge. I think that all came into that. Uh, yeah, shyness as a character because of the, the structure and the not being sure, and fear, a fear of humiliation. There, but then the structural thing of economics, and honestly, I'm terrible at maths, I always have been. So, my parents saying, You must do maths, you must do maths, and beating it into me. So, I left school with no maths <laughs> and very few qualifications. But I think that really fed into my shyness and fear of authority. Even now, if somebody in authority says something, I tend to believe them, even though I'm trained to critically think. My initial reaction is go, okay, yeah. <laughs> I think also in the working class. So I started riding motorbikes in my late teenage years, early twenties, because that's what my peer group were doing. I was scared, scared, shitless, mm-hmm. <laughs> all, all the time. But that group pressure that I felt, it wasn't there really. But I thought I must fit in, so I have to do this and go at these speeds. But at that time, on a Sunday, lots of motorcyclists used to go out for a ride. Not organised somewhere, but just go down the main road. And the police would stop you about 10 miles out of town. They would just stop everyone. Like, where are you going? What are you doing? Not that we've any laws or anything. But that's something from the working class. You don't really... Because motorcycling then was associated with the working class. Now it's quite a posh thing to do because they're really expensive. So that sort of authoritarianship was still around even then. So there was mm-hmm. a fear of the police. Never getting in the back of a police van if you can help it. All that sort of thing was real. So I think those sort of things feed into my not being sure, not being confident. And so when I do things like this, because it's going to be about my research, I work round it by going, this is about telling the stories of the, of the men and about this missing thing. And I'm just the conduit. It's me. But there's a purpose to it.
2: Mm. We're
0: going to talk about your academic journey a bit later in the pod, Robin. But I want to talk briefly about it in relation to class, if we can Mm. here. So you told me how this imposter syndrome you had followed you on this journey into academia. And you told me about this mental tick you had where you Mm. would half joke that any time you'd be called into a meeting, you'd bring your coat in thinking they were going to sack you. And then sort of preempt that process. How difficult was that for you at the time? And was there a moment where you felt comfortable enough to stop doing
1: it? No, I don't think that there was really. I think it's it's always there. Uh, sometimes it's like 90% and sometimes it's like 10%. You're always self-aware. Oh, uh, you are. I am always self-aware of what I bring in. I haven't got much of a Manchester accent, but I have a bit of it. Because of my hearing, English is a bit of a second language. so I struggle with some words. So I'm aware of these vulnerabilities that are out there. And so that feeds into the self-esteem, being open up, being criticized. It all goes in there. And yeah, so I worked for 30 years as a scientific and technical photographer. And then because digital photography was coming in and they weren't going to invest in it in the university I worked in. I changed career to be a counsellor and did an MA. And started looking at then my broodiness and um, why men's desire for fatherhood and then an MSc, and then a PhD. But all the time it was, you know, I'm a working class lad. I shouldn't be here in a university with these really intelligent people. they recognise that I'm not fitting in. In universities, a different language, it is like going to a different country with a different culture and a different language. And you've got to learn the language. There's Even if you're middle class, conversion. by the way.
0: <laughs> Because there's different yeah. layers of being middle class. I thought I found out when I went to uni. I went to a state school and then a grammar school, and then I found out that swiftly there's a whole different yeah. layer of middle class that when you speak to them, you go, "Wow, I feel working class talking to you."
1: Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And you know, clothes, technology, particularly my PhD. I was really aware of the age difference because of the MA and MSC tended to have older students in. I think the youngest one would maybe in the mid twenties in those little things but in the phd a lot of the phd students had done uh, their degree there and then were doing a master's and then a phd so they're t- early 20s but i was in my mid 40s so there seemed to be a vast difference The ease with technical language and concepts that they would just throw around and say, what, what, what the hell does that mean a lot of those so people so, were probably so,
0: chatting shit, though, to be fair. A lot of people do that yeah, in seminars. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Absolutely.
0: <laughs> you find out on the essay results. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. You know, talk a good game. <laughs> yeah, and there is that sort of social interaction as well. The sort of one-upmanship going in and the fitting in of cliche groups going on. But to me, coming as an outsider, I say, wow, these guys are so intelligent. They use Latin phrases or French or something like that. And that's... <sighs> What you know, <laughs> Femi Laporte's my limit on French. Also, kel <laughs> fromage. But, uh, <laughs> so that's it. So yeah, there's that reinforcement of difference and the feeling that goes with that of not fitting in. And coming from a big family, and fitting in, fitting in's very very big. I've just realised I've said that about fitting in as a teenager as But yeah, there's also this idea of fitting in with with a pack. Not that I want to lead the pack, but I don't want to be out of it either, but I was, and how many people are are actually in the pack that they think they're in?
0: you said 20. for your post graduate diploma, you had to write a fifteen hundred or so reflective statement, which I understand mm-hmm. you didn't have much idea about how to write. Can you tell me why this was sort of an important moment, and the reflections it made you confront about yourself?
1: okay, yeah, I'd done the basic qualifications in counseling, which was. Short blocks, really. And the next block was to do the postgraduate diploma in uh, counselling. But because I hadn't got a degree, I was coming in as a mature student, I had to do an essay. And 1,500 words sounded incredible to me. sounded like a whole book in itself. <laughs> and it's going to be about me. But one of my things is deprecation. So that's always a good way to start. You know, if I put my faults out first... That actually I own them and you can't really attack mm. me on it. It's something I do because I've been job. bullied.
0: That's what I do. It's a defensive mechanism, yeah.
1: Absolutely. And if you can say it with a bit of a smile as well and make a bit of a joke of it, then it's very safe for the other people to laugh at you, but you're controlling the laughter. Exactly. So I'm on a mat. I'll pull it out myself to save everybody the time. Yeah, so that's what I was thinking. How am I going to... And also the weight. This was my key to getting into something, to making a, a step, because I needed the postgraduate diploma to actually work as a counsellor. So it took me ages. I tried to do all the counselling things I'd learned, but it was a self-reflection. And first thing I started was, I'm a working class man. I come from a working class area in Manchester. I'm the seventh of eight children. That was like the first few lines. And... I thought, I've got, I've got to get in there because that is me. I've got to be honest and say, you know, I'm not worthy <laughs> but to be I guess it's a subtext to that,
2: mm-hmm. looking
1: back. And then there was a thing by a psychologist who used to be on, an anthropologist psychologist on the telly called The Ape in Your Living Room in the 1970s. And it was really interesting. So I went on to that actually, you know, why do that spurred me on? And I've always been interested in people. And their stories. So when I was growing up, to get the stories from my gran and granddad, or any older people, and when I was in work, everybody seemed older because they were only 17 when they started work. But, but they older, older people. Looking back, they were probably 35. And the people about to retire, getting their stories was really interesting. And that's why people are interesting. So I went down that line. But again, you can see that's all out of me. It's all about somebody else. But it took me a long time. My wife now was, we were going out at the time, and she's a health professional. And she's also done a writing course and really interesting writing. So I asked her a lot (laughs) about stuff. So although I said I write it, I wrote it. Now thinking back, she did a lot of editing. (laughs) Because my spelling was terrible. My English was terrible. Because that's what I've been brought up with I was yeah. really quite a naive so I'm naive I'm a naive gullible sort of person at that time so yeah, it was really difficult to do that so sent that in got through that stage and then it was the interview process and it was a group interview and then we paired off with two academics and I managed to pick the two academics who both came from large families one from a family wow. of seven one from a family of nine never met them before didn't know them but it sort of speaks to was there something unconscious in that because it's my selection and there were half a dozen, and <laughs> I thought no, I'm going to go with those two. I seem to have a connection with them, mm-hmm. and I went with that. And uh, it was the first thing they said when we went in the office. I said, "Oh, we're both from big families as well."
0: <laughs> interesting, very
1: interesting. Yeah, the fear, and it still is a bit of a fear when you start to to write. Got more things in my armory to put down now, but then it was quite exposure and really reflecting back of what was missing educationally. Yeah. And how to get across that river when you can only doggy paddle. I wanna
0: go back to the hearing loss you discussed, Mm. Rob, because when we were exchanging emails before this, you mentioned that and the fact that you have thirty percent hearing loss in both ears and constant tinnitus which you were diagnosed with in your 40s. Now, this must be incredibly hard for you on a day-to-day basis. and It's an issue I actually discussed with a previous guest called Jack Circuit, who's a DJ, although he didn't get the tinnitus from DJing, ironically. Can you tell me how it affects your mental health? Because you said it affects your speech, is that right?
1: Yeah, it affects my processing, and yeah, I find it difficult to say some words at random. So sometimes I can say existentialism, and other times I can't. Well done for saying it on this pod. (laughs) (laughs) Which is my go-to test of myself. So when I was born, I didn't breathe, which is very common then in the the 60s, in the the city area, all the pollution, etc. And I was really lucky that the uh, midwife, A, had a car, and she had some oxygen in the car, so she revived me. But I probably didn't breathe for a few minutes, possibly 10. And this hearing loss is very much associated with birth trauma and non-breathing, so I mean there could be other stuff going on in there, but without a brain scan <laughs> not going to find out, I'm not going to have one of those, <laughs> but as a kid I just accepted this buzzing in my ears it was just there all the time so it, I didn't question it until about 7 or 8 and the Apollo space missions were going on, so there's a lot about monster, as a kid, monsters from outer space and all that sort of thing, and green men talking to you and I remember one night looking out like the bedroom it was dark, and this big burst of tinnitus came through I didn't realise it at the time and I thought it was spacemen talking to me so I thought why are you talking to me I'm a kid I remember (laughs) thinking that and saying that and I went down to my mum and said I've got these noises in my head and she went don't tell anyone and again that working class fear of authority obviously fear that they'll take you away that sort of thing so I didn't. I didn't until my 40s, <laughs> even though I had it all the time. And that's when they diagnosed the the hearing loss and the tinnitus. But I have it all the time and I deal with it by an existential thing. How do I know I exist? Because I have constant tinnitus. Uh, that's something that if you didn't exist and were dreaming you were existing, you probably wouldn't think, I think I'll dream I exist. constant tinnitus (laughs) it's not the first thing on the list that's my existential explanation to sometimes because we're focusing on it now i've got it now it's like as an example Uh, and sometimes it's very rarely loud and sometimes it's not Listening to music helps focusing on something else i can block it out then but also i sometimes picture a an oscilloscope And try and picture the wave so it's all crunched up and really, and I try and smooth that out, smooth the wave out, smooth it out, smooth it out, smooth the wave, just a visualisation thing of mine. But yeah, uh, there have been times when I thought I could just stab myself in the ears here with it, Mm. but there's got to be a bit of a okay, I've got to do something about it, try the visualisation and distraction. Sometimes it, it wakes me up. It's so loud. It depends what's going on. Mm. I think if there's something really big coming up, the mental gets worse because it's all related to brain activity is one thing I've heard that. We have natural filters because to block out our bodily sounds, otherwise we'd be just a constant orchestra of bodily sounds. So we have filters for that and there's a filter. For brain activity that hasn't formed that's
0: it i want to go back to what you said about being a counsellor and i'll talk about your counselling journey here the idea of imposter syndrome comes back to the forefront because you said that you thought you'd be bound to fail at being a counsellor but you thought you'd give it a go anyway because it wasn't yeah. a huge financial investment at the time did yeah. that give you a certain degree of a comfort blanket looking back and then tell me about maybe the methods or forms of therapy you use to help your clients and how you've seen the conversation about men's mental health change from then to now.
1: So I got into counselling because I spoke to one of my uh, wife's friends who was a counsellor about something she said, you know, you listen, you, you should try counselling because natural listener. So, OK, I'll try that. And it was really lovely little block. So you could do a 10-week, one evening-a-week course to begin with. And then it was 30 weeks. And it was 18 months. But part-time, wasn't a financial investment. But, yeah, absolutely, I went in expecting to fail. And the great thing about it, it was like constant assessment. So there's no exams at the end because big fear about exams. And I think the fear is this is a yes-no situation. I pass this, yes, I don't, know, And then just focusing on what happens if you don't pass rather on the what you do pass. So yeah, so I thought this is good because it's not too exposing and it's something I'm interested in. And also they were forgiving because they knew they were dealing with adults who hadn't probably had a great education. So it wasn't like you'd get a load of red on anything you'd done. They'd just say something like, you know, you've made some good points, you've covered this, you could do with just doing a spell check <laughs> or whatever. So there was always a positive end to that. And the more I did it, the more I got into it, the theory and actually listening. A lot of it is practical skills that be how to listen. And we'll come back to that, how to be non-judgmental and how to protect yourself as well and to recognise. So that initial start thing of where am I in this what's happening for me starts to be built in at that early stage. So, yes, and then we got on to the postgraduate diploma, and after I'd got that, I could start working. And as a counsellor, trainee counsellor, I'd start off a, a little charity that did telephone helpline as well as face-to-face counselling. So the, the trainees, the newbies, went on the telephone helpline, and that was perfect, actually. It really honed your listening skills, and you become really aware of what you're saying. And so if you cock up and everybody cocks up, you go, oh, yeah, instantly, I know I got that wrong. And um, what to do in that situation? And, um, you know, I'm sorry I, th- I didn't put that across well, be open and honest. So did the postgraduate diploma where we went much more into theoretical. So when I started counselling face to face, it's very much on the fellow's name, I can't remember. <laughs> 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 Fantastic. I'll leave uh, this in. <laughs> yeah. Carl Rogers. There we, go. there we go. Carl Ransom Rogers. Not many people know the Ransom bit. So, yes, which is very person-centered, non-judgmental, authentic, genuineness, empathy. So all very, very internal and nurturing, really. To mm. Let the person tell their story, don't judge, and hold them in that sort of warm embrace of non-judgmental and they'll work through it. And I think there's something to that. And I'd say when it comes to listening as a counsellor or listening in counselling, if you listen so hard, the other person can hear themselves, genuinely hear themselves and then choose the narrative. Mm. And I think that is really hard to counselling in listening and I think a well, thing for men is they're not used to being listened to,
0: or being trusted, and, or feeling they can or being be trusted. trusted. Yeah, yeah, absolutely.
1: So these things that say, oh, men, you know, just talk, just talk. It's lovely, but it's listening that is going to be the doing part and being listened to and being and trusting the listener. Yes, so that's the most important thing, you know, isn't it, it, for men?
0: Yeah, ab-
1: absolutely. And that's I think what you've got to do as in counselling in psychotherapy, particularly with men. Is they've got to trust you, and they'll always test you. They'll always test you. Suddenly I mean, women do as well, because I cancelled both. You know, it's always how far can I trust? Can I trust you? Have you? Are you actually listening, or you're going through the motions? But then there's other things, techniques, and uh, therapies you can bring in. I really liked the drama circle of there's um, an aggressor, a victim, and a rescuer, and the role revolving round. And I think all counsellors are rescuers. So when you go into a therapy session, do you recognise you're a rescuer? Because you'll need an aggressor and you'll need a victim. So it could well be your interventions, although on the surface are for the other person, are they really for your own position as a rescuer? And then you've also got to realise, actually, as a rescuer, I can be an aggressor. So you've got to be really careful on that. And actually... I was really successful, wrong word, but I had good results with people who had been abused in childhood, adults abused in childhood. And I think one of the reasons for that is I was very happy if they'd written poetry or they did art or anything like that. And we discuss it through that. And that was a vehicle then for them to express and develop and use visualisation techniques to help with... Cause it's sort of a form of PTSD to work with that. So there's an eclectic mix of things I'd bring in. But for me, it would be horses for courses. My stick would be at the beginning was, I don't know much about you. I've got certain skills. You're the expert on your life and what's happened. You can tell me anything you want, but I can't promise a solution. It's not like I've got a jar of solutions here that I can just give to you and it'd be fine.
0: It's difficult for men to hear because we are stereotypically problem solvers, aren't we?
1: Yeah. So if we work together, I bring my skills, you bring your story, and together we'll work on a new story and try and make things better for you. Mm.
0: A few years ago, I'm right in saying, Robin, that you didn't used to think men were complex or fascinating creatures is the term that you used when you spoke to me off air. Why was that, and then when did your perspective change, and in what way?
1: I think I went with the common social narrative of how men view men, which is a bit of a dick, <laughs> generally, you know, tend to downplay other men and what they do, unless they're doing something really nice for you. Or I think, particularly in the teenagers, is that competition you want to be liked, but you've got to sort of make your position in the pack or society. So you want to stand out, but not stand out so much it's detrimental or open to humiliation. Yeah, so I think, do men really like men? And I think that's structural. Do men really like men? Depending, as a heterosexual man, I tended to like women more than men. But again, that might be because I had four sisters around me. Although it was frenetic, it was comfortably frenetic as a a childhood thing. And maybe... Also, there is the societal thing that women are nurturing and kind and can be trusted. And maybe there's a societal thing that men can't be trusted in better. And, and I fell in with all those. And I think during my counselling diploma, I started to understand more about what because it wasn't that much about men. And then when I took the MA, it had to be something you'd experience. I was really broody in my 30s. And I started to look and I found there was really nothing around men men's experience. Why is that? And I heard through the counselling, actually, a lot of men are saying, I've never spoken about this before. And that struck me as, what is it that men can't speak? When they're emotional beings, we're born with the same sort of emotional range, all of us, and where does that get taken away? That generally, broad strokes here, women are expected to emote and be nurturing and emotional. And men aren't. And what is it? And I think as I went through all my qualifications, actually, it's really significant that men don't feel they can speak. And maybe that they speak through actions. So all that internal stuff is actioned, but not spoken. And if you flip onto the other side, the academic side, men are judged by their actions, but not really their feelings. There's a gap there, so that's sort of reflects. And, yeah, I find men fascinating. I find men fascinating because of this, how they're trying their best when there's a whole chunk that they're trying to deal with but don't have the social outlets there. So to negotiate that, trying to drive down a 10 lane highway when you can only be on the hard shoulder yeah and yet there's all that other stuff that you're trying to deal with
0: before we move on to involuntarily childlessness can you just very quickly tell me about the idea of balancing the external versus the internal which you spoke to me off air and how that relates to men and their mental health
1: yeah that's exactly it so we live in a really complex world and there's lots of stuff going on out there and we're trying we've got Biological drives, we've got neurological drives, we've got social drives, and the social ones tend to be the outside ones. So how do we balance what I core want, my body's telling me I want, what I want intellectually and what's available and how I negotiate that. So trying to balance the external and the internal, that's the interface that's really critical and what tools what language, what capital, what resources we have to do that. Ah, gosh, that is where we're at. And for men, quite often that's embodied. You can see it on on their bodies from where they work because they're working to provide for the families or trying to make it because that's the social structure. Then go out and do stuff and bring it back, care by provision. So how they negotiate that and negotiate their own needs and drives. How many times do they push stuff down to fit in? Again, that, fitting in. So fitting between the internal and the external.
0: We've come to the most difficult part of your journey, Robin, which ironically is now the basis of your life's work. So you've managed to turn this negative into a positive. We'll talk about the work in a little bit. But on this point, for the listeners, you're 61 and you are involuntarily childless. Let's go back a bit, if we can. Tell me about your journey here in regards to relationships, why you ended up in the situation you're in now, and then the factors behind that. So, for example, timing of relationships and things like that.
1: Yeah, as I spoke earlier, I I was a bit behind everyone, I think, in forming romantic and intimate relationships. But I did manage to do that, and I got married when I was 26 to a woman who's a few years younger than me. And we were going to try to have kids. So there's a thing called the package deal for men. And men tend to say, I'm going to leave school if middle class or above, do university, get a job, find a partner, have a family. If you think that in terms of an arc, the top of the arc is have a family Okay, over the life course. And society says there's different appropriate times for doing different appropriate things. So when you can go into the pub, when you can be a, start to vote, all that sort of thing. So there's social strictures in there and social expectations of when you're supposed to be a parent and when you're not, usually between 20 and 40 for most societies about Earlier than that, not so good. Later than that, not so good, although that's changing them. So I got married when I was 26, slightly behind my peers who were in relationships Maybe starting to have kids, not quite, but more, at least a few years on from it. Although we tried to have children, and baby-making sex was really enjoyable. Put another layer of emotional connectedness. But then we stopped trying to do that. My then-wife changed jobs, things changed economically, and she met somebody else and, and left. So at 30, I got divorced, I kept the house. But then interest rates went up, and I'd had, I had, I think I was paid £320 a month, and £220 was going out in the mortgage, £100 Whoa. to live on. And so it was like two or three years when I couldn't go out. When we were trying to have children, I felt a real pressure. Was there going to be a good enough provider? Would it be a dad like my dad?
0: Was that a fear for you?
1: Yeah, absolutely. It was definitely a fear and anxiety, and like locked in my head with a big, black cloud around me on that because she'd probably give up her job or work part-time you know I wasn't on a great salary isn't it? I was in a safe job which so I'd followed my parents advice there so I got approval for that I wasn't particularly ambitious it was uh, dead men's shoes really to get promoted so yeah that was a real fear around that how I was going to be a father how I was going to provide how I would be as a dad being so aware of all my failings then, But we split up and then really couldn't go out for two or three years. That's sort of critical, period. <laughs> and then I did sell the house, moved back down to Manchester and met up with a woman. And we had a really good uh, relationship. And at one point she said to me, I want to have your babies. And that was a really joyful time. And I didn't have the fear. What I thought was, well, you know what, she was starting out on a career path, really, and she was going to be good, she was going to be successful. I can be like a stay-at-home dad, and that'd be fine.
0: You didn't feel any stigma over that either?
1: I didn't, no. Maybe at that time it was coming through anyway, not that I invented it, but maybe it was just becoming more acceptable and out there. But yeah, I thought that'd be really good. And actually, work, you, it's great. The social side of work is fantastic, meeting people and having a brew and all that sort of thing. But the pressure side of it, I know looking after kids is no easy thing, but it's a different sort of pressure. And so I thought, yeah, that'd be really good. But then we split up. And so timing of events, partner choice, economics. And economics is a really big thing and I think there's a really big thing about uh, student loans in the UK, how that will impact. <laughs>
0: yeah, well, I'm talking to the preachers uh, of the choir here, nine grand of yeah. fees and interest rates that are making me not even pay my own loan off properly because of the privatisation of the uh, student loan company.
1: Absolutely, and yet the people who put that through never thought of that. They never considered the economics of it. And economics in uh, reproductive outcomes has been known for a while, but it's sort of not seen as important. And then I met my wife in my late 30s. i just bought a house and she was living in London. I was in Manchester. And she's a bit older than me. She's a healthcare professional, or was a healthcare professional. And she dealt with many families with special needs. And so there's one particular, I'd come back to the house and I just moved in. I was doing some wallpapering and I'm absolutely useless at that. Absolutely Same. No, any comedy thing with wallpapering I've done that <laughs> And it's not funny
0: It's the Chuckle Brothers <laughs> vision I've got visions yeah. of the Chuckle Brothers scenes <laughs>
1: Absolutely, stick it up, falls on your head <laughs> It's on your back, you're on the wall Everything <laughs> And And we're having a a conversation, and also a colleague at work had just become a dad, and I was so jealous of him, Mm. so jealous. And I really was really broody in my uh, mid to late 30s, desperate to be a dad. I was so jealous of him, I'd avoid him. I avoided him as much as possible. And we used to be good mates. And so we had a a call and said, you're not sounding so happy. I went, no, well, so-and-so has had a kid, bloody wallpapering, I'm feeling really broody. She is from the Northeast. So, you know, if you want to become a dad, then you've got to find somebody else because it's not me. Wow. The bluntness
0: continued again.
1: (laughs) Bluntness continues again. Because, you know, I really wanted to be a mum in my early 30s. But because of my experience, I know older mothers tend to have children with special needs. And I couldn't deal with that. I know what that's like for Mm. a family. And at my age, I just know i can't I can't face twenty thirty years of possible. I'm not willing to take the risk
2: yeah,
1: I'm really glad she said that then, actually, because there's many people who get together and they never talk about this sort of thing mm. until push comes to shove, and well, shall we have kids? Oh well, I didn't really want them oh. Yeah, so I think it's really important in a relationship to get that out. If you're if you don't want to have children, say that. If you do, say that. And so we had a, a big discussion. And then for me, you know, at thirty, now I'm thinking all my peers are tend to be married, tend to have kids, seem to be having kids when they come back from the shops. Um, <laughs> and where would I go? And who would have me? I think that that is a key one. Who would have me? Because I need somebody five, ten years younger, and that seemed like. Two or three generations away of different music, different clothes, what have you. And um, actually, what was I bringing to the party? Apart from my rugged good looks. Of course, it. mate. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, uh, see, deprecation. I brought it in again. But I Fantastic. was I was
0: pushing back on your deprecation there. You were. Because I recognise it.
1: But you see how easy it, it slips in? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what are the positives I've got in? You know, A woman who's, who's gorgeous, she's more intelligent than me uh, and uh, there's a bit of a theme there as well so I put that to one side it's not going to happen
0: how did you feel the day after you had that conversation or the weeks or months that followed it and that status Mm. as involuntarily childless was at least confirmed in your own head was there grief was there regret was there anger what were your emotions in regards to your mental health
1: all those all those it's not a black and white decision or it may seem to be a back of my decision, but they come back. They have a life course of their own and a timeline of their own. And yeah, it, it was a hard decision to make and an even harder decision to accept. Mm. And I think that went on for years, the what ifs and the balancing. Because there's constant reminders outside yourself of what you're not. And being a parent, any car advert at the moment amazing how they shoehorn in having a kid it really i mean obviously they're targeting to people's aspirations and their the ideal you get this car and you'll fit all those other ideals mm-hmm. on the arc of life at the top okay and that's what i was well what i'm aware of now is then is the difference between the ideal arc and the actual arc and the gap between and what other people are doing, and they all seem to be on the hierarchy. And that difference can be actually a big pit.
0: For many people yeah. listening, Robin, they might wonder if you considered IVF or even adoption. Were they ever on the table for you, or, or were they ever something that you considered, or not?
1: We didn't consider, well, we didn't consider IVF because my wife didn't want to become a mother so there's little point I think on adoption we did discuss it a bit but it would be mainly me who would be pushing that agenda Mm. and there's no simple fixes to complex problems and as soon as you put a person into any sort of issue it becomes a complex it becomes automatically complex Mm. and adoption isn't an easy thing it's not like you can just bob down the local kid shop and adopt a kid you know there's lots of training lots of assessment all that sort of thing my wife had been because of a health background had been involved in that side of things and, and it's not simple and we're old at 40 and above the adoption terms you know people generally want to adopt a baby and there's lots of kids for adoptions and most of them aren't babies an awful lot of them are and so we considered it but not for long because i think if we could have adopted a baby that might have been it but the knowledge was that wasn't going to happen because of our age i want to go back to that conversation you had
0: with the colleague because Mm. you eventually were forced to have that conversation with him. The poor guy, he must have thought you were absolutely (laughs) raging with him. You said to him, you've got the life I should have. How did you feel saying those words and how did he react to it?
1: I felt it was genuine. It was really from the heart. Mm. So it was very emotional, but not teary to Mm. say. And uh, I think the jealousy came through. Not anger, but that sort of tone. Of you've got the life I have I should have. Was there and I think it's just like a weight. There was just a weight around me. Mm -hmm. Like those cartoon weights are Acne weights,
0: yeah. (laughs) Acne weights. (laughs) Just
1: around me. I was in there, maybe with my head sticking out the top, saying, You've got the life and his life would be green fields and the cottage and lambs gambling in the field, that sort of thing I guess so that weight was still there even though I'd said that it's not like that they disappeared but I think there was a weight in the words I said and mm. that would be that acme weight so I had a weight and I gave a weight to the things I said and he said, mm, there's nothing I can do about that and that's a very fair reply <laughs> but we've got to work together. So we did get back to being friends and he made me godfather of his boy, which I think was his way of trying. In fact, he did say, so you can have an experience of being a parent. I met you godfather. And I don't think I accepted, but I didn't want that particular thing of being around there every weekend Mm. or anything. And I said, You know, well, if you need babysitters or anything like that, that's fine. We'll do that. But it wasn't going to be a filmic godparent relationship thing because it would be just too painful for me.
2: Yeah.
1: Because it would be just just a reminder of that life I hadn't got. Mm. The good thing is he's more ugly than me, but he was more successful than me (laughs) (laughs) Uh, career-wise. And he reproduced three times. How? (laughs) well I know how (laughs) but why and again why him and not me and that's another thing that goes through you why them and not me particularly if a parent's being poor to a child why them why not me not that that was any guarantee I would be a great parent either but yeah that was a thing and the difference then between me and almost all my colleagues was always there because they'd be talking about whatever the kids were doing. I remember one, uh, the, it was him, actually, and another colleague, they had kids who were like seven or something. And they are saying, oh, the the kids are playing DS. They're playing the DS. And the only thing I could think of was Drug Squad. <laughs> and so I said, your, your kids are playing Drug Squad? Do you not think they are a bit young for that? And they just laughed at me. And, you know, you just don't know, do you? Well, no, I don't. DS, Nintendo game Nintendo things.
0: DS,
2: yeah.
1: I had no idea. But that sort of is indicative of the difference between parents and non-parents and the amount of stuff targeted at children and the whole social arena and environment around children and parents and that shared arena that parents have in experience so you know if you're at a party when people used to do parties and stuff like that you know or any social event (laughs) at a certain age people say have you got kids And that's their gambit. And uh, No, I haven't. You see the shutters go down. The shot come up. Well, that's nothing to say to you then, quite literally. And they turn and walk away. Or, are you infertile? They go straight in there. It can be quite uh, blunt. And it can be different for men and women. A lot of women, childless women, say, you know, oh, well, you must be a career oriented. You must be very selfish. There's no holding back around that.
0: It's quite a lack of social skills there, to be honest, more than anything, to ask those sort there of questions is. at dinner parties.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's out there. It, it's not uncommon. Mm. I mean, people are searching for a shared area to talk about. And one of the most common ones at a certain age is being a parent or being a grandparent now, because I'm in the generation where my peers are becoming grandparents. And social media is a great reinforcer of that, of people sharing their pictures or whatever they're grandkids are doing and quite often they're doing caring duties as well that difference of being and not being over the life course that difference between the ideal and the actual doesn't go away with age Uh, what can happen is as their kids grow up and go to university and leave home if they do then the parents sort of come back that peer group starts to reform a bit and then the grandkids come along and then it disperses again so it's a bit tidal In that way,
0: I want to talk about broodiness because it's something that you mentioned quite a lot there, Rob. Because societally, for let's say centuries, it's been a very gendered emotion, a female emotion to be precise. So, for the majority of people, male or men and broodiness might not be two words to go together. Do you think there's a stigma about men being broody that it's somehow unmasculine for men to be broody and emasculating? for them to visibly express it because you were keen to dispel the myth of the unbothered man, inverted commas, when it comes to parenting. Can you tell me why you think that's rubbish and the example of, I think, life on Mars you used to demonstrate this when we spoke off air?
1: Yeah, okay. I think it is rubbish. Again, simple boxes to put people into. And so the simple box is women, natural mothers, their main focus of life, is motherhood and that's expressed even these days all over the place at many different levels of society and for men well a they're fertile from puberty till death and they're not bothered about becoming a parent because there's no time limit on them because they can do it any time men only want sex but they don't want reproduction and let's go to mars uh, let's say those vehicles are up there, find a species that involves a male and a female. What would happen if either of those didn't want to reproduce? The
0: species would die. The
1: species, the species it would die out. And yet, here we are, talking on this technology, a lot of the world, you can get transport around, you can get stuff, particularly in the richer countries. So... On that sort of very basic biological level, to say men aren't bothered would be wrong. So why is the denial of the emotional side of that and men's need to become a parent? I mean, I've spoken to many women who are parents and they say, well, I wasn't really bothered, but he was. But you wouldn't say I was having them. and Certainly there was one counsellor I spoke to and she said, you know, when I met my husband for the first time, I left that meeting knowing that he wanted three kids and I was very happy with that. So... Men do want children and also there's a biological urge and the biological urge is often associated with the menses, the period, the fertility period, for women. But again, if we go to the biological thing, there must be a a drive for men to reproduce to promote the next generation. All societies and all species actually are all about going for the next generation of continuation. So, this idea that men aren't bothered it does a couple of things. one thing it forces everything about reproduction onto women and what that means in around that, but also it sort of means men aren't bothered, and maybe men are disposable then because you can always get a man and then you 've got to look at how society views men and wants from their men, and one of the things that most societies do is doesn't want the men to be seen as vulnerable. Most nations are warrior nations at some point or other in their development. There's a book by Cynthia Daniels called Exposing Males' Reproductions. It's an American book. She's a political scientist. And she said maybe there's a thing that if your male population was seen to be vulnerable, particularly with reproduction, then that would give a psychological advantage to any enemy straight away. I think there's a definite myth about men and not wanting to reproduce. And also in my MSc, I did a little survey and found that men who weren't fathers had about the same level of desire of women who weren't mothers to become a parent. And usually the myth is women are broody and men aren't bothered although it's a little one, one of the interesting things about that is it's really hard to find any science behind that statement that men aren't bothered and women are As far as I'm aware, mine was the, the first one, but it's just a little one. But it's so fundamental because quite often that's repeated in academic literature and fertility literature, that men aren't bothered or in one way or another. And it's important, it really is. If it's core, a biological function... It's got to be important. It's got to be important socially as well and mentally. So men are but but also the men compared the childless men, the non-parenthood men and the non-parenthood women. By comparison, the men were more depressed and more angry. And in fact, the non-parenthood men had much more in common on those factors of depression, anger, jealousy, happiness with the women, non-parents and parent women, than they did with men who were parents what you could say there is parenthood made a significant difference to the men
0: this brings us on nicely to male fertility Mm. because the other common argument about male parenthood is that because men don't have wombs they can do what they want and procreate for a lot longer time period than women because of their supposed virility and one eye-opening thing you told me Robin was that Babies who are born to older couples, if there's a health issue with the child, it's much more likely to be an issue with the male sperm rather than the female egg or the ovaries or the womb. Mm. Do you have any statistics to back that up? Is there misinformation around this that might cause the conversation to become less informed? And then why is that research around for male fertility a false narrative? I believe you kind of framed it around sperm decay and something to do with feminism's fault for that could you explain that a bit more
1: right sperm decay yeah okay so we're bombarded all the time by all sorts of radiation and the longer we live the more effect that has that does go for eggs and for sperm but for sperm there is a bit of a biological clock so there's a biological clock usually associated with women but it's more and more evidence that it is for men as well and for men i spoke to about the age 35 was the peak but also more and more evidence coming through from studies of sperm, that sperm starts to decline then. And the older you get, the more issues you can have because of the quality of the sperm going down. So there's more and more evidence for that. It's really hard to put statistics on that because these studies may involve thousands, but they're usually in a country or another country, usually with men who've been to infertility clinics. But more and more are coming together. So I don't think there's one big one that says this, but the evidence is definitely pointing that way. And this is biological evidence. So it's been done in labs, they've been through peer review things. And for men, there's a slow andreopause. So their hormones decline slowly, compared to the quite rapid change in women, even though it's over a period. So there's a hormonal decline, the andriopause comes in, and also the physical decline, depends what you do. But also the environment impacts on uh, sperm, that's coming more and more through. So alcohol, smoking, sedentary lifestyle, all those things impact on the quality of your sperm. And the older you are, obviously, you've had... Cumulative effect on that solvents and if you think of where men tend to work particularly working class men and working class men are more likely to be childless than any other class it's usually in dangerous environments where they're exposed to all this chemical and other substances so there's a lot that I've just started to come through to say actually men are vulnerable bodily vulnerable but then again we link back through to what society wants of men and whether it really wants to see them as vulnerable for me if you allow men to be vulnerable it's just going to be a benefit for everyone an absolute benefit for everyone there in feminisms reproduction is really central a massive debate around it particularly around assisted reproductive technology is IVF The most feminist thing you can do because it gives you control is IVF. The most feminist thing you can do because it allows you to reproduce anyway and gives you choice then and takes an element of other power structures away. gives you power. In masculinities, academically, nothing around reproduction. It's all about structural stuff, about power, jobs, criminality, physicality, but not about reproduction. And that I find really, really interesting that really how powered academics haven't seen that. David Morgan, the late great Professor David Morgan, said back in the 80s, we thought we were studying mankind, not men. So that structural thing, they studied men as mankind, as a structure. So what they did, how much they earned, all those sort of measurable metrics, but not the emotional thing. And on the opposite side, they studied all the emotional stuff around women and their experience, the experiential stuff, but not so much of the structural things. So academically, and this is really important because the demographics are changing. As you said, hundreds of years that there's been a change, a switch to women are the main things for reproduction. Men sort of put to one side, they're just there. There's more and more childless people coming through demographically. In this country, it's about 20% women, 25% men. And that goes to, actually goes through the world. There's more childless men than there are childless women. The difference is that when a mother registers a birth or when a birth is registered, the mother's fertility history is taken, but not the men's. So you know exactly, to a really accurate detail, of how many childless women there are, but no idea of the childless men. And this is important because policies are determined by the statistics. And in later life, so last year the ONS released a report saying that there's going to be, I think, four times as many women aged 85 than there is now in 2040, childless. But the figures of men a bit vague. They'd gone round other places to try and draw them together, and they weren't particularly accurate. This is important because in later life you rely on family and actually all states rely on the family to take the care of their older people as the main carers. About 8% of care in later life is by formal care. The rest is informal care by family and friends. And so the care, and this is really current, the social care package is fundamentally about family. And when they say family, they mean adult children. And although you may not have children so that they will care for you in later life, it's certainly what the government expects. And so with the coronavirus in the TV and the news reports, grandma can't see her grandkids, can't see her children. But 30% of people in care homes are childless. Where's their stories? Where's their narratives? Who's caring for them? If you go to the mid-staff's health issue a few years ago it was the adult children who raised that the people were being abused and not cared for so if you didn't have adult children who was advocating for you who was looking out for you so that's why it's important that men's fertility history is taken because long term you're going to need to know how many people are going to be wanting to access social care how you're going to manage that and what facilities there are And at the moment, what we can really say is that 2030 to 2050, there's going to be a population that should have been recognised, that are going to be knocking on the door of the health service and social care. And where have you come from? Well, we're there all the time, but somebody decided we're not going to count men. And there's a great saying from America, from Horace Sheffield, saying, you know, if you're not counted, you don't count. That was to do with elections in America and directly related to funding to an area, to black and African American areas because their people weren't voting. So if you don't count it, you don't count. And that's true, even more so these days because everything is done on metrics. And if the people who count won't count you, you're doubly discounted.
0: I want to finish on the written work you've done because when you sent it to me, amongst all of the academic stuff that you'd written and published, there were some poems that you wrote about being involuntarily childless, and one was called No Candle, and it was so emotional and heartfelt that I feel like I can't do this pod without asking you to read it out. Would you feel comfortable doing so, Robin?
1: I absolutely would. So, No Candle. No candle to light, no cake to cut, no nappy smelly, no teeth to keep, no hand to squeeze no stories read, no surprise to feign, no plays to see, no shoes to clean, no sports days drama, no parties to police peace, no presents to buy, no amends to make, no scrapes to clean, no kiss it betters, no tears to dry, no hearts to mend, no embarrassment to give, no graduation photo snaps, no can you help with this, no now empty nest, no grandchild to hold, no legacy to give, No one to call, no one to catch the fall, no wishes heard, no life lived, described, few tears shed, no candle lit.
0: That's an amazing poem. Thank you for reading that out, Robin. Thank you. I just want to finish now by asking you to reflect on this part of your journey. So you're 61 years old now, Rob. How have all these experiences shaped you into the person you are today and if you could go back and talk to that 34 year old robin who was maybe struggling with broodiness or maybe the 18 year old rob struggling with imposter syndrome what would you say to him knowing what you do now
1: i think the 18 year old i'd say take a bit of a risk and it'll be all right you've actually got a long time (laughs) to live you've got a long life and you take a bit of a risk risk take it easy and actually that, that inner stuff go for that not trying to fit in because fitting in flits around and you're fitting in sometimes it doesn't last long and then you're out and just easier on yourself not to be doing things for what you think is for approval just do what you think you're going to be good at so buy a car rather than the motorbike <laughs> would be that one, actually, because it's a lot warmer. <laughs> <laughs> and then the 35-year-old, 34, 35-year-old, I would say you're not alone. Actually, you feel alone that you're the only one who's broody and that you can't say it and you're really aware of the difference between you and where you think you should be and everything around you. But well, actually... You're more intelligent than you think. You've got more to you than you think. And actually, go and get some counselling. <laughs> go and get some counselling and hear yourself and then choose your narrative and how you want it to be. 61. It doesn't matter being 60, you know, these zero years. That actually, well, I've probably got 15, maybe 20 years to go. So on that arc of life... Three quarters way down the down the slope now. And actually, what do I want? What do I want to happen in the next 20 years? And how do I want to, to live my life? And actually, how am I going to manage that? Because there'll be a time that maybe I'm a widower. Who's going to look after me? How am I going to manage that? So, but at 61, I don't feel I have to fit in. I can just do what I want now to a degree. It's always good to have some money to pay the bills. So that's still a thing, actually, <laughs> money to pay the bills. It's still a fear of getting a knock on the door and being thrown out. Um, <laughs> but in academia, there's quite a lot of working for free, working for your CV. And that's because it's generated really geared to younger people who are coming out through universities and building their careers. Well, I haven't got that length of time to build a career so no I'm not going to work for free anymore I'm not going to write a chapter for you unless there's some money in it for me because I can't keep mortgaging the future because the future's very close and we all know how this ends so you know I'm really lucky I am you know I found a, an area I've put my head above the parapet because I think there's a narrative and there's stories to be told and that people should know that men are vulnerable and men want to do emotional things And hopefully, some men and some women will get some understanding from this sort of thing and say, Yeah, that's me. But I'd expect men to go, That's a bit like me, but I'm like this. And that's fine because you're finding out about yourself, you're defining yourself, you know where you are. We're like ships or aircraft, we're going along and we're sending out a signal Where am I? Beep, beep. Where am I? Where am I? I'm on track. Where am I? I think because of the lack of narrative around men and childlessness, and also a bit to do with parenthood that beep just goes going out and out and out and then very faintly comes back in so we can actually put some more way markers to more responders there that's going to be healthy for men and for everybody around
0: them we've checked in about your personal journey Rob I want to talk about your academic journey and how you turned this experience from one which was quite traumatic for you into one which now helps so many men so tell me about the academic side of this maybe about the broodiness scale that you developed and then the phd you did on childless men because i understand that the men speaking to you about this were doing so for the very first time weren't they how did that feel
1: it was it was really emotional that they shared so much and felt comfortable to say this is the first time I've talked about this and to be there in that moment and it also gave me a sense of responsibility that I've got to report this genuinely and accurately and respectfully that their stories and their emotions are not dismissed or made small and that the emotion comes through with it that it was core for them so there was a a sense of a generated duty of care, I guess, and respect from that element. Yeah, I did the the scale for my MSC because there didn't seem to be one, <laughs> and yet broodiness is is often used all over the place. Usually, we weren't, but you know, I'm feeling broody. Uh, when I googled that initially, it came up with things about chickens. <laughs> Quite often, the is <laughs> of chicken, but so there's something uh, around that, and in uh, Australia, they call it clucky or the feeling clucky but again. So, I just wanted to sort of pin this down actually, were women much more broody than men because it's just said so often? And yeah, I did that. I did a little question saying, Do you have a desire for children? A lot, a little, none, not at all. Not bothered is what I came up with because that's when I did my pilot study, that's what people said, not bothered. They didn't use the psychological terms that quite often applied to scales. So I started using the way people spoke and I think that's probably more accurate or more representative than some of the, the academic terms used in scales. It was very close, I think it was 58% for the women and 51%, 62 to Fifty-two, so not ten to ninety percent or anything like that, but much more closer. As with a lot of these studies, when it comes to non-parent, there were more women than men. I think if it had had absolutely equal numbers, it would have been much more closer. But even so, men are broodier. But then there's the effects of that. What were the influences? So for men, quite often it was economic and social and cultural influences about parenthood and becoming a parent but with an underlying biological urge. And for the women, it was social, cultural, biological urge. So there's quite a lot there. And I think the biological urge is something that's not really reported for men. And yet they are. I think in my native would my sacks are heavy, you know. And uh, I think that would be another way of saying I've got an urge, a to have sex, but I think to reproduce as well. I think there is a biological, there's got to be. It's just that nobody's really looked for it on that one. On the PhD, yeah, I got my MSc and then was going around for a, looking for a PhD because this lack of men's experience, there's hardly anything out there. There's some about infertility, but not very much. And also for men like me who wanted to be a father, but didn't go through infertility treatment, uh, and also women, because of those other factors that influence becoming a parent. The economics, shyness as a person, choice of partner. And all those things change over time as well. It's not like they're all fixed. So I really wanted to explore that. And I luckily got a PhD, a studentship at Keele University. And it came through the Aging Gerontology Department, Centre for Gerontology So it had to be about older men. But that was fine because there's so little about men and reproduction and their experience and their feelings around it. And that was really interesting. I interviewed 14 men aged between 49 and 82. And it really was a very emotional journey to interview them. And then the stories are so moving because you get the transcripts and you try and analyse them. there's lots of tears about why they hadn't become dads and their feelings about that and Mm. not being able to talk about it too much to anybody the three guys who'd been through IVF had talked to their partners but saw themselves as supporting their partners and that Mm. their partners were more important and uh, there's one guy I spoke to He'd been married, and his wife hadn't wanted to have children, but he was desperate to be a dad. But he'd suspended that, and he came out that his wife was tocophobic, a fear of childbirth. And that's really interesting, because a fellow in France in the mid-1800s noticed that and reported it. But it only really became defined in psychology, again, in the late 1990s. So... He got divorced and married someone else in his 40s. She's in, I think, her late 30s. And they have children, and it's not happening. So they go for a test, and he's infertile and has been probably since 15. Wow. When there's some tubes, some veins in your, your testes, and they fused. And this isn't uncommon, and it's a heat thing. So global warming could well affect reproduction for men. So it's very important that you don't wear tight things, you keep your testes cool as possible. And so they decided to go for donor conception, and that was really difficult for him, but he, he went with it, because then she would experience motherhood. So I interviewed him once, then interviewed him the second time, and he'd read the transcript, and he said, Well, I had to talk to my wife, and you know that bit where I said, I only did it for her? She said well, we should have spoken about this because I only did it for you. And it's really, really interesting that they went through all that sort of doing it for each other without saying they're doing it for each other. I think it's something so core about reproduction that that would be the way. And I think probably a lot of people do that, maybe not having to go through the IVF, but they don't talk. They don't say, actually, this is what I want on here
0: as a final question rob there might be men listening to this pod who will think this is helpful but i want some resources too Hmm. where could these men go to find support if they're worried about fertility or they're feeling broody you mentioned a Hmm. facebook group off air which has been really helpful for men in this situation is that a public one you can share
1: there is a facebook group specifically for men going through a closed facebook group for men going through infertility treatment. So I just Google Facebook, infertility treatment men. And there's the clan of brothers, which is for men like me, who aren't gonna become dads, but wants to be dads. So involuntary childless men, tends to be older, Men 40 and above but it's just a place where you can hang out you can tell your story you're not going to be judged or you can just say you know i'm kicking back and having a beer in the garden it's not all heavy stuff or this is what i like i'm walking the dogs and doing this but it's just somewhere where you can be in a space where men who've experienced something similar to you will be there and won't be judging you if you're worried about your fertility see a doctor In England, there's a thing called HEFA, a Human Fertility Embryology Authority, and they've (laughs) got a big site on everything to do with fertility and fertility clinics, etc. So there is stuff there, and again, in in the UK, the NHS has stuff on fertility around that. Counseling There's a thing called the British Infertility Counseling Association, and there's also the British Association of Counseling and Psychotherapists, And the British Psychological Society, and should be able to find somebody who would be able to specialise in the field or have knowledge of it. For those who are involuntary childless or going through that episode, I suggest looking for somebody who does a infertility or childlessness, and also bereavement, because it's a form of bereavement, a loss. As I was saying, that arc between the ideal and the actual, that gap is a bereavement. And it's constant. And it can come at any time for you. So I was sat in the garden when it was sunny a few weeks ago and neighbours' kids were playing and just their voices, because they're eight or nine, seven, eight, of joy was really moving to hear that. And I'm tearing up now. That it was really moving for me, that actually Mm. to hear that. But it is also acknowledgement of, it's not mine.
0: We have come to the final topic of conversation, Rob, and it's one I try and have with all of my special guests. It is a general natter and chat about our mental health. So, how would you say your mental health is at the moment, mate, first of all?
1: I'd say it was average.
0: Okay, six out of ten?
2: Yeah lovely
0: lovely that's good that's probably about mine as well actually at the moment and if you felt comfortable saying what mental health issues or conditions if any do you live with and how do they affect you in your day-to-day life
1: you know i want to say depression but i've not been diagnosed with depression and i think the way they measure it doesn't really accurately reflect people's experience of it because for me it moves in and out sometimes i'm in a fug for days but sometimes it's a few minutes when i'm really down And other times, it's variable. So quite often they say, have you been depressed in the last seven days? (laughs) A, I can't often remember what happened yesterday. And I've been (laughs) like that all my life. So never mind over the last seven days. So I move in and out of moods. I'm a moody person, actually. But yeah, I'd say I tend to go to the downside. In the film, Johnny and somebody, the woman says... I'm a BLT down sort of person. I've no idea really what that is, but there's something about it that catches me. I'm a BLT down sort of person. Actually, for the Mancunian, I'm a bacon butty down sort of person.
0: (laughs) What age do you think you were, mate, when you first became self-aware of your mental health and you realised that the feelings you were having weren't physical and they were actually in your mind and a product of your mental health?
1: I think that was in my early teenage years. I really think so. I think I wouldn't want to revisit them because of all the pressures around and trying to fit in. Mm. But also, again, that fog around.
0: Can you remember the first conversation you ever had with someone about your mental health? And if so, who was it with? What impact did it have at the time? And did it feel like a big moment or a big burden or weight had been lifted Or did it feel like something quite insignificant and normalised?
1: That's such a good (laughs) question. I think it was probably with my mum and in those teenage years. And she probably said, what's wrong with you, you miserable, in subtext, you miserable git? (laughs) And I probably wasn't able to express it. Mm. I did a very common... Stereotype, of doing, mm, just, mm. so yeah, I think that is feeling very core to me now. So I think it's probably with my mum, and I probably responded very much like that. Just reflecting, I didn't have a narrative. I didn't want to expose myself even to my mum, and also I wasn't sure what it was. What
0: things do you find in life that trigger? your mental health Rob so it could be things people might say to you it could be a sound it could be a sensation it could be a social environment like the dinner party she mentioned or have you not figured all of them out yet
1: well you're so good at listing these all things (laughs) yeah all them yeah well done um (laughs) I think part of the trick society sort of plays on you is that everything's going to be fixed that you're fixed as an individual and you're always going to be this for the rest of your life and all the way through and you're not you're just spinning around and getting like an atom being attracted and influenced by all other things That I think that goes for mental health and my mental health as well mm. so yeah lots of triggers when I get something reviewed and it comes back with more work to do that really sends me into a fog and that's because when I was a photographer i sent things out and they hardly ever came back so i did a job it was finished away and the thing with academia and, and writing is always comes back always <laughs> comes back and what's even more annoying is quite often they're right they are always right that you've missed a word or it doesn't make sense and you sent it out because we're sending it out i'm really happy that it's gone and it's perfect and he comes back, and it's a pile of shit. <laughs> and you've got to work at it again and work at it again. And can you see me going down? And you are going to... See, so I'm digging the hole myself already. Things like that can trigger it very easily. But again, somebody saying something nice about something I've written, that can get me up in the cloud. Fantastic. Mm. I do want to keep going down and down and down. <laughs> but, you know, just... And sometimes I can just get myself into a fog in the the existential thing. Mm. Why am I here? What's my point? And there's something then about why do I collect the negative tokens?
0: You mentioned there about positive comments sending you into a a good place. So let's talk about the tools and methods that you use to improve your mental health or help you Mm. feel better. Which ones have you found that have worked for you and maybe which ones that you've tried but maybe haven't worked out?
1: One of the best ones for me is actually going to do something physical so sat in this chair and i feel like i'm in a big hole and uh, been here for hours i think well i've been here three hours and Sorry. i've got nowhere <laughs> apart from further back from when than when i started actually i'm just gonna go and cut something down in the garden or or move something or hoover whatever but just actually physically doing something gardening i think is great particularly weeding, because you can just focus on pulling that stuff up or tidying something up and you get absorbed in that and your brain's always processing. And it's something my mum used to say, actually, you know, go and do something else or go and sleep in it and your brain will sort it out. Trust in your brain. Quite often I've done that and what I thought was a really insoluble problem and gone and done something and then be working away. Oh, God, it's it's not that. It's this, this is the answer. It's something about doing something physical, like the poetry is is another way of being physical as well. I don't mm. do it much, so you're all relieved to hear that.
0: <laughs> I talk a lot on this podcast, Rob, at this point, about two ideas which you've probably heard a lot and written about a lot. Toxic masculinity and positive masculinity. Now, maybe I'm in a bit naive or optimistic, but hopefully in a few more pods, and a few more years, toxic masculinity will be in a very small minority. I always say that it starts in school, and if you can nip it in the bud, then, then I don't think it will exist in men when they leave school. Yeah. I always talk about positive masculinity, and hopefully, maybe I'm optimistic as well here, that in a few more years, masculinity will just be positive masculinity, if yeah. that makes sense to you. What would you describe as either of them so for example some guests have said that positive masculinity is self-confidence self-awareness empathy supporting other men what can you tell me here
1: some terms just become really really popular and quite often these are sociological terms you've got to dig around to the background of this is that somebody's come up with this and it's very popular in academia if you knock out a phrase you've got a career
0: (laughs) I can see where this really. is going.
1: <laughs> and then other people leap in because there's a nice phrase and it embodies quite a lot. and It's, it's a quite catch reductionist.
0: term. Yeah. yeah. Yeah.
1: And we all can say that phrase and fantastic. We all know where we are. But actually we don't because it just gets spread around. And it probably was a useful concept for one paper about one thing. But now... Poof, it's all over the place.
0: It's used too much now, I feel, for different yeah, for, for the wrong situations absolutely. as well. There's a place for it, but sometimes I'm feeling mm, that that's not the right context.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm sure somebody wrote a paper out saying why toxic masculinity has been abused. <laughs> now, cause once it goes into the media, particularly now with social media, then it just gets thrown onto any poor behaviour. And we all have potential to be toxic. That's not a gendered thing. That's a human thing. So you could argue, why are you particularly looking at this gender for this? So for men, why, or for the males, why are you looking at toxicity just in this? On the other hand, you could, why are you only looking at reproduction for females?
0: Well, there's toxic femininity as well, which I think but needs absolutely. to be recognised.
1: Yeah. Well, that's where it all goes. The gender thing, labelling attached to it goes, it's toxic behaviour. It's behaviour that's not acceptable at any time. So it's toxic behaviour. But we have to learn about that as part of growing and being a human. That there is part of you, when you're a baby, thinks it's the centre of the world and everything is around it. And when it has to learn that actually food's not coming every time it demands it, behaviour gets worse. Until it learns actually my needs will be met, just not right now. So to me, sort of sums up toxicity in behaviour. You want your needs met, it's just not appropriate in that environment to behave in that way because you're 18, 34, 60. Then Mm. you can understand a baby, but this it's not appropriate. So positivity, yeah. But again, positive human (laughs) behaviour.
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: And why do that? Why are we altruistic? Because there's a good chance that will come back to us. And we're empathetic. We're naturally empathetic. It's just that some people know that word. Some people know what's happening around that. Some people can learn to be that way. And we all can. Some people have it knocked out of them. I think I asked uh, that
0: question more because, A, it's an open-ended question and you can answer it however way you want. And also, it's about emphasising that men are capable of this and capable of these emotions more than anything.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You absolutely nailed it there. And the the question is, what is it about just looking at one group through a lens that is negative and not another group? Or actually, what's the advantage of doing that? Because there might be an advantage of saying this, but then you've got to put it in the context of everything else. I think being appreciative of other people, you don't know their stories, You have no idea what's happened to their lives for them to behave like they do in fact there's a woman called naomi murphy's a psychologist in prisons and has dealt with really serious offenders and she said you know if you don't call them prisoners or convicts but damaged people it brings a lot more understanding to their behavior and we're all damaged to a greater or lesser degree and we're all working through that. And mm-hmm. that's where positivity comes through. We can, you know, as I was saying before, why do I collect the negative tokens? I can collect the positive tokens. And actually I can go and seek those positive tokens.
0: Exactly, mate. And that's a great, that point about prisoners actually is amazing. And I'm just gonna, I've am gonna i stored that for future use. I've got one more question left, Rob. And it's a broad one as well. So you can answer this as, <laughs> whichever way you want to. What more do you think we have to do to ensure men from all backgrounds, all walks of life, feel comfortable and safe in opening up about their mental health issues or just their general mental health if they want
1: to do it. There's got to be a lot of education. It's got to move from the middle class media all over the place. I think one of the great things about social media and technology we've got is that there are a lot more resources easily to get hold of if you have a smartphone. But there are a lot more around there for Men in particular, and I think that is growing. There is going, certainly on mental health, I think there's got to be a much more link-up with physical health and mm-hmm. diet. It's all got to be, because everything is symbiotic with everything else. But yeah, I think in that way, as you said about the Marcus Rashford book, this sort of thing, it's really important that materials is available. And actually, men are judged neutrally. And actually men are not men men are just humans we're humans and like okay part of us is men but inside all of us we're humans and we've all got that emotional capacity to be her and to her and to love and be loved
0: robin hadley thank you so so much for coming on the just checking in podcast
1: thank you so much for having me i've really enjoyed it it's been really emotional and really enjoyable
0: Well, we have come to the end of this episode of the Just Checking In podcast and what a podcast episode it was. I want to say a massive, massive thank you to Robin for being my special guest on this episode's pod and for checking in with me. He is an absolutely incredible man, I cannot state that enough. I'll put some links to where you can follow Robin on social media and find out more about all the excellent work he is doing on male childlessness. He also has a book coming out at some point so get following him if you want to find out when that goes out and when it's published. Remember I'll sign us off by saying if you've liked what you've heard give it a share on social media, tell your friends, tell your work colleagues, tell your family, tell everyone you know and share the good word about Vent and the Just Checking In podcast. If you want to support us further feel free to write us a review, give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts, that will really help us out with the algorithms and let more people know about the podcast. If you want to support us even further, please consider supporting our Patreon. It's at www.patreon.com slash eventshelpuk. If you don't want to do that, and that's absolutely fine, feel free to go to our GoFundMe page, and that is on our link tree and in all our channels. We hope to check in with you again very soon. And remember, guys, it's always okay.